Let's give it up for all of our team members. Say thank you. Yeah. Thank you, everybody that serves. We had a great time gathering together at both of our locations. And we like to do that just to celebrate all of our team members that serve so faithfully here. And just as a way to remind you to jump in and serve and join a team. If you see people with colored shirts on with the number 72, it's because it's a part of our discipleship process. It's when Jesus sent out the 72 on mission. And so getting to be a part of our church and living life on mission is what it is all about. It's a great way to get connected and to grow in your faith. And speaking of growing in your faith, we're going to jump into the text, but as always, let's pray together. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for today, for the opportunity we have as always to gather together, God, to sing and to celebrate and see people and hear your word. God, we ask today that you would meet with us. We thank you for your word because it is a lamp unto our feet and a guide unto our path. We God, mostly because it tells us the truth. God, we live in, in, in a world today where truth is so relative. But God, if truth is relative, then nothing is real. And so we need to be reminded of what is real, what reality is, what truth is. And so God, we pray now as we open up your word that you would speak to us, that your spirit would fill us to be able to see and to hear what is in this word. And as always, God, help me to communicate this first and foremost in a way that glorifies and honors you and then secondly is helpful to us. And we, again, thank you for the privilege and honor to be here and to sit underneath the authority of your word. We ask you to bless it now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you got a Bible, open it up to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. If you don't have one, as always, don't worry. We've got the verses on the screen. We'd love to give you a Bible as a gift if you don't even own one or would like one. But we're preaching through the gospel according to John. And today, we're going to kind of look at the beginning of the end, if you will, of Jesus' public ministry. In fact, it's going to take us two weeks this week and next week to do the last few verses in John chapter 12. And the reason why that's significant is I've told you this at the very beginning, but just the way that the book is laid out, chapters 1 through 12, there's kind of an intro in chapter 1, and then it gets into Jesus' public ministry. And so his public ministry lasts until chapter 12, and John's going to give us a purpose, and I'll go over that in a second, of everything that Jesus did and why Jesus did it. And then in chapter 13, it's going to switch to some private conversations that Jesus is going to have with his disciples, which we'll get into on Father's Day weekend. And then for several chapters, he's really just having this private conversation with them before he goes to the cross. And so these two weeks, these last two of chapter 12, you're going to really get a summary, if you will, of, John, of Jesus's public ministry one from John, which is what we're going to do this week, and then next week you'll kind of get a summary from Jesus and really a summation of the message of Jesus, what his public ministry was all about. And I want to encourage you, I, I, the other day I said warn you, but it's not a warning in a bad way, but I want to encourage you to think today. Now I know that may sound weird when you come to church, like I don't want to think. Well, here at this church we want you to think. We're not just here to entertain you, all right? We're teaching you the truth, so I want you to think. And the reason why I want to encourage you to that is this text that we're going to see today, a lot of times would just be a text that pastors would skip over because it is tough to understand. 
there is some density to this, and by that I mean it's thick. And if you want to know what thick is, just look at me, all right? And so (laughs) thick is the, I'm big boned, all right? I'm not obese, I'm thick, all right? And and this text is thick, and, and, and if you just kind of shy away from those kind of texts, then you might miss the meat that's in it. You might miss the joy that's in it, just like a good, thick steak, and I'm making us all hungry now, and we're all gonna be thick because of this thought process. But I just wanna encourage you as we get into this text today, we're gonna be in John 12, verse 37 through 43, and and this is John's, again, summary of everything that Jesus did, and this is written years after Jesus had done it, and this is John thinking back under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, trying to put sense to what happened. So let's go verse 37. John says this, though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So John's wrestling with that. So Jesus did all these signs and they still didn't believe. Verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, this is now a quote of Isaiah 53 verse one. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John, in thinking back on Jesus's ministry, is really struggling that so many people didn't believe in him, which to me, honestly, is an encouragement because if people didn't believe in Jesus when Jesus was there in front of them doing all these miraculous signs, then it's an encouragement to me sometimes when people don't believe even though I'm teaching all these things because that's a struggle, isn't it? It's a struggle when we look out at people and we're like, can't you just believe? I don't know if you've ever been like this, but if you're a parent, you probably have been. Don't you just wish sometimes you could crack open people's skulls and like put it in there, close it back, call it a day? Or if there was a USB port in the back of their head, you just, just get this, right? But if there, if there was that, then we would be robots and you could program them. But that's the beauty and the tragedy of humanity. It's called free will, which I'll get into more on that in just a second. But John is looking back over Jesus's ministry. Remember, he's writing this years after it happened. He's thinking back on what happened and he's wrestling. He's, man, oh, so many people still didn't believe in him. And we have to remember that that was John's whole purpose in writing this gospel. In fact, I've got it here on the screen. You don't have to turn there, but John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, this is the end of the gospel. This was the whole purpose statement to which why John wrote. And I want to remind you, look at this. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John wants people to believe because he wants them to have life. And he's wrestling with, man, I wrote all this down. I wanted people to know. But one of the saddest things that I had to write down is so many people didn't believe in him. And and again, this is kind of a side note. There's always sermons within the sermon. But you have to understand the purpose of the signs. And I say this often because pastorally, I want to try to help you because people wrestle with this. People wrestle with the things that Jesus did do and the things that Jesus didn't do. And and you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, the public ministry of Jesus, there was a lot of people that he healed, 
But think about all the people he didn't heal or the people that he healed and other people saw it and they didn't believe. And so if you look at the ministry of Jesus and you say, okay, if he healed this person and not this person, why? Because we have to understand something about healings or signs or miracles. They are always there not to just operate on the surface of this specific healing, but to operate below the surface to get people to believe that Jesus has the power. That's the point. So when we wrestle today with why did you do this and why did you not do this, what we have to understand is Jesus isn't out to just primarily perform the sign. He is out to perform a sign for the purpose of belief. That's the point. So sometimes he does the sign to lead others to believe. Sometimes he doesn't. But whether he does or doesn't, what we have to understand is this. It's never about the sign itself. It's always about the spiritual belief. And the reason why we have to understand that is because we will just be people that are always seeking signs if we don't. We're always just seeking signs and miracles. And we attribute people who see miracles that they have more faith. People who don't, they don't have enough faith. And it can really harm people in that. But the point is, it's not about having enough faith to see the signs. It's about the signs are there to produce faith. That's the point. The best example I can give you is when Jesus, some friends brought a paralyzed man, the paralytic, to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven. The religious people freaked out. They were like, who is this who has the power to forgive sins? And Jesus said this, so that you know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks. And they were like, well, we can't argue with that. That's who this guy is. He's God. So you have to remember, that guy that he healed, he still died. And this is where we have to, again, pastorally think God could heal somebody. He can perform a sign, but that person is still going to die in the end. So the healing is always temporary, but the belief below it is eternal. That's the point. See, even Lazarus, think about him. We talked about him a few weeks ago. He was brought back to life from the dead, but Lazarus died again, didn't he? He's not alive now. So even in the miracle there's still, the, the end still comes. But the point was not to just bring Lazarus back so that Lazarus could enjoy life. Because let's be honest, don't you imagine that Lazarus is up in heaven for four days? He's like, I don't want to go back. No one ever talks about that in the story. Lazarus is kicking it with, with the father. You know, he's up there hanging. And, and he's like, I, I'm sorry to tell you this. You got to go back. What? But why? Again, he did it to show that Jesus had the power over death. And here's what John is writing, which is why this is important. That's the purpose of the signs. But even then, people still didn't believe. They did not believe. Now, look at John verse 12, John chapter 12, verse 39. This is where it gets even thicker. John says, therefore, they could not believe. Not only they did not, they could not. For again, Isaiah says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. 
Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now here's where we really have to have a conversation. First, John, looking back over the public ministry of Jesus says, so many people did not believe. And that confirms what Isaiah said in chapter 53, verse one, when Isaiah himself was struggling because he was like, no one's believing this. No one's believing this. And then John looks even deeper into the scriptures, which is what we should do too. John takes his struggles to the scripture. We don't take our struggles to the hairdresser, which I love my hair. I don't have a hairdresser. I have a lady who cuts my hair. I love her. We talk. That's great. She's not the Holy Spirit. We don't take our struggles to social media, which is what we do a lot today. We take our struggles to the scriptures. That's what John did. And John, we have to remember the Old Testament wasn't compiled yet. John takes it to the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't compiled yet. Did I just say the Old Testament? I don't remember what I said. The New Testament wasn't compiled yet. He took it to the Old Testament. And anytime you see the New Testament say the scriptures, that's what it's referring to. Because what's revealed in the new is hidden in the old. So John goes to Isaiah, which Isaiah has been called the greatest prophet. He's a major prophet, which I said this a couple years ago. What's most amazing is Isaiah is one of the most revered prophets, even to Jewish people today. And there's so many prophecies in Isaiah about Jesus that they just overlook, that they think that the Christians made up later until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we got older copies of all the Old Testament. And I'll just before, there was one prophet in those scrolls that was complete, that no one could argue that anything was made up. Anybody want to guess? It was Isaiah, yes. Putting to rest any struggles that the Jewish people had about Christians making this stuff up. No, it was all there. So if you want to understand why so many people didn't believe then you can go back to the scriptures. And there was two scriptures that John quoted, Isaiah 53, verse one, and Isaiah six, verse 10. And I wanna put these two together for you. In Isaiah chapter six, it's a rather famous story when God calls Isaiah. And if you know about the story, if you've been around church, it starts off with this scene that Isaiah is in the temple and it says in the year King Uzziah died, he was in the temple and the glory of God filled the temple. It began to shake and it crushed Isaiah. He saw him high and lifted up. And then there's this famous scene where Isaiah is like, I can't speak, woe is me, which is what happens when you come into contact with the holy God, your sin is revealed. And then there's this picture of his lips being seared, which means I am healing you. And then God says, I need to send somebody to this people to preach to them. And Isaiah says, rather famously, here I am, Lord, send me. But after he signs up to be sent, the Lord tells him what he's gonna be sent to do. And this is what Isaiah struggles with, was with in chapter 53. God told Isaiah, I'm gonna send you to these people and you're gonna speak to them, but they're not gonna listen to you. You're gonna speak and tell them the truth, but they're not gonna hear it. 
And this is where John is picking up on this and saying, just like God sent Isaiah as a prophet to the people and they didn't listen, God sent Jesus and they didn't listen. So Jesus, therefore, is the greater Isaiah. But then there's this phrase that says, therefore, they could not believe for, Isaiah says, and then it says, God hardened their hearts. This is where we have to talk. Because on the surface, when you read this, it makes it sound like they couldn't believe because of God. Because God had done this thing, therefore they couldn't believe. And this is what I'm trying to highlight. First, John says they did not. Then he says they could not. You can put those together. They did not because they could not. And that phrase could not literally is the Greek word dynamus. It's where we get our English word dynamite. And it means power or have the power or ability to do something. And so John is saying they didn't have the ability to do it. And then he quotes Isaiah. And that's where it makes it sound like on the surface that the reason why they didn't have the ability because of God. But anytime you struggle with the scriptures and it feels like God has done something unfair, just assume that your assumption is wrong. You're not thinking about it correctly. Because you gotta put these two verses together. Isaiah chapter six and Isaiah chapter 53. Because what you hopefully should know, and if you don't, you will know today, Isaiah chapter 53 is one of the most famous chapters in Isaiah. Chapter 53 verse five is what I have tattooed right here, and it speaks of the suffering servant. See, what Isaiah was wrestling with is no one was believing his message because he was presenting a king that nobody wanted. No one wanted a king that was going to come and suffer. They wanted a king that was going to come and conquer. They wanted a conquering king. But Isaiah is presenting a message saying, what you have to understand, and of course they didn't understand it then, but Isaiah understood it, he's coming twice. He will come as a conquering king, yes, but first he will come as a suffering servant. And that's why chapter 53, verse one, Isaiah says, no one believes this. And then he gets into, he was stricken. The, Lord's, the Lord struck him. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him like a lamb led out for slaughter. So here's how God hardened their heart. He hardened their heart, not in that he created the unbelief. He hardened their heart in that he gave them what they needed, but they didn't want. And he knew that when he did that, they wouldn't believe it. Let me give you another case study, and you can write this down later, but just in the story of Exodus with Moses and Pharaoh. If you've read that story, multiple times in the text, it said Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it says, God hardened his heart. And you look at that and you think, what did, did Pharaoh do it or did God do it? And the answer to that would be what? Yes. But here's what you have to understand. 
God didn't create the unbelief. But when he spoke the truth to them, it just hardened them in their unbelief. Because he didn't give them what they wanted. That's what's going on here. In fact, let me help you with this or try to help you with this. But again, you got to think, I'm going to teach you some Latin here. All right. There was a guy in the third century, one of the greatest theologians that's ever lived named St. Augustine or Augustine, depending upon, you know, your, how you say things. He was from North Africa, which the, one of the greatest theologians who's ever lived is African, which we should celebrate the diversity in the kingdom of God. And Augustine, in wrestling with these texts, gave an explanation that has been so helpful to me. And, and I want to explain it to you so that you can wrap your minds around what John is saying here when he's saying they could not. So let me give you this first slide. I'm gonna teach you some Latin words here, all right? Latin words are passe picare. Passe is where we get our English word possible. It means to be able. And picare means to sin. So passe picare is able to sin. And then passe non picare is able to not sin. So you with me? So these two Latin phrases that Augustine said is when man, and what he means by man, he's speaking of Adam. When Adam was born, he was born with the passe picare, able to sin. And he was also born with the passe non picare, which means he was able to not sin. So when we talk about free will, this is what I was saying earlier, what we have to understand, free will, we have to think of it biblically, not a secular definition of free will, which sadly a lot of Christians think about that. Because something happened between Adam and the rest of humanity. In fact, I'm gonna give you a four-stage progression here. Let me give you the first two now. We'll do the last two at the end. This is the four-stage progression of humanity. So you have pre-fall man. This is Adam. He had the ability to sin, passe picare, and the ability to not sin, passe non picare. So when we think about free will, what we have to understand is Adam had more of a free will than we did. Because God had to create humans with the freedom of choice. And so when Adam chose, he had the ability to sin. He had the ability to not sin. But after the fall, this is where it gets to post-fall man. Listen to this. Post-fall man is able to sin, but we lost the passe non picare. We lost our ability to not sin, which means this. Now we are unable to not sin. You see the difference? We're unable to not sin. And this is where people get the wrong definition of free will. See, the secular idea today is when every human being is born, and I don't know if you took philosophy or any of that kind of stuff, but let me break it down for you as simply as I can. The secular idea is when a human being is born, they are born as what's called a tabula rasa, a blank slate, 
Remember learning about that in school at all? A blank slate. They're born neutral. And what secular minds think is every human being who has ever been born has been born like Adam was with the ability to sin and the ability to not sin. But the biblical definition of free will is this. No, only Adam was born like that. But once Adam chose to sin, he lost his ability to not sin. And now every human being after Adam has been born. You still have free will, but you're not as free as what Adam was. You're not as free as what Adam was. Two great theologians, if you want to study this later, Luther wrote a book called Bondage of the Will. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called Freedom of the Will. And both of them are saying the same things that Augusta is saying is this. Man isn't free. You're enslaved to sin. You lost the ability to not sin. See, secular views say man, and by man, I'm saying mankind, so men and women, men and women are basically good people who make bad choices. But the biblical definition is no. Mankind, men and women, are fundamentally fallen people. This is what we call original sin. That one sin literally affected all of us. And so we're not born with the blank slates now. We're not born with the ability to sin or not sin. We're only born with the ability to sin. That's it. So fundamentally, we're not good people who make bad decisions occasionally. We're fundamentally broken, fallen people who might occasionally make a good decision. But even that good decision, a lot of times, is for the benefit of our own glory, which is why we post about it on social media. Serving it soup kitchen. You got your glory. It was for you. We don't need to know what you did. We don't need to know what you gave. See, <laughs> this is where it amazes me a lot of times when people in church think about these things from a secular definition. That man has free will to the point to where man can choose good or choose bad. And this is where I want to say, have you seen humanity? Have you, have you, have you had a child? You didn't have to teach them to say mine, did you? You didn't have to teach them to hit their sister, did you? You didn't have to teach them to take that cake and shove it all over their face, did you? You didn't have to teach them any of that, why? Because they got it. And where'd they get it? From you. They got it from Adam. So listen to me. When the Bible speaks about people that can't believe, here's what you have to understand. We don't possess the ability to. This is why I say often, we're not bad people that God makes good. We're dead people that God makes alive. So John, when he's looking out at why people did not believe, he's saying, well, they couldn't. They weren't able to. They weren't able to believe. They don't have the passe, possibility, the ability to believe. 
You say, where did John get that from? Where you should get it from, Jesus. Look at John 6, 44. I got this on the screen too. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one. What do you think that means in the Greek? Does that mean someone? What do you think no one means? No one, which would be no one, right? No one. There's not one. There's not one. There's nobody who can. Just to show you where John got his theology from Jesus, from Isaiah, that word can is the exact same word in verse 39 when it says they could not. They could not. Why? Because Jesus says they cannot. It's not that they didn't. It's that they couldn't. It's not that they wouldn't. It's because they couldn't. They can't. To say it in redneck and ease. They can't. They don't have the ability. And this is where we, we should stop and, and we should say, well, hold on. Well, if they could not, no one can. Well, it's how anybody saved. Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two. I've got it here on the screen as well. Paul says this, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. What is the this? The faith. The faith is by grace. You've been saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. The faith that you had to believe is not even your own doing. It is the gift of God. Verse nine, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved by them. We're saved for them. But here's what's amazing. I'm saved by the work of God. That word there, workmanship, is one of my wife's most favorite Greek words. It's the Greek word poema. Let me say it to you like this. You are God's poem. That's the English word poem. You are God's artwork, handiwork, masterpiece. No one could believe. No one possessed the ability to believe. You're not free. This is where, again, you don't have a free will that's able to sin or not sin. You're in bondage. All you can do is sin. That's all you have the ability to do in your natural self unless God intervenes and gives you the ability by grace through faith. By grace through faith. See, that's what John is saying. And there's a lot of people that wrestle with this truth. And I understand it is thick. But the reason why people wrestle with the sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity is because they place too much value on the free will. It's not a freedom of will like Adam had. 
which is why Paul in the book of Romans and elsewhere talks about Jesus as the second Adam. See, Adam was born with the ability to sin or not sin. Every other human after Adam was born with only the ability to sin, not the ability to not sin, lost it, until Jesus shows up. Jesus, who was born by supernatural birth, right? He didn't have Joseph as his father. He had God as his father. He was now born free from sin. And the reason why the Bible calls Jesus our second Adam, because he's the only other person who had the same freedom that Adam had, which was the ability to sin and the ability to not sin. But this time he chose correctly. He chose to not sin. And so biblically speaking, there's only two categories. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And for those who think, well, I have the freedom to choose right and wrong, you don't understand the slavery to which you are in. And if you don't understand the slavery to which you are in, you will never cry out to Christ like you should. Because you think Christ helps you. Oh, he helps me do it. To where the biblical says, no, he didn't help me do it. He did it all. I couldn't help him at all. I had nothing to bring to this. All I brought to this was my sin. I wasn't there when Jesus made those decisions, physically speaking, but now if I believe that he did that in my place, then I am there spiritually speaking. And when God looks at me, he will count me in Christ's family, not just in Adam's family. See, if you and I don't understand our inability, this is where people are like, well, I choose all the time. Yes, you choose. You chose to wake up. You choose to come to church. You, choose, you chose to log in, uh, log in. Great. That was great. No one's saying you can't choose. You have freedom of choice. What the Bible is saying, though, is left to yourself. You would never choose God unless God intervened by grace through faith and gave you the ability to choose. And when he did that, you responded in faith and you were saved. Which go back to John 12, verse 42 and 43. Nevertheless, don't you love those conjunctions? Nevertheless, Ephesians 2, earlier verses from what we just read, I think it's verse four and five, but God, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Watch this, verse 43, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, I don't know if these people that believed, if it was genuine faith or not. I don't know. But there's something to extrapolate here, which is why I think John put it in this context. And it's this. In order for faith to be genuine, all glory has to go to God. See, the problem a lot of times with the viewpoint that says, well, I chose 
then some of that glory goes to me. Because I'm highlighting man's role in the process. And the reason why the Bible says pride goes before a what? A fall is because pride is simply the glory of man. Highlighting man's role. And when people ask me why I believe the way I believe, that man is fundamentally flawed and broken and dead unless God comes and intervenes by grace through faith, unless that happens, people say, why do you believe that? Because in my opinion, that's the one view that gives all the glory to God. I don't wanna rob any of it. Number one, because I know how bad I am. I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't looking for God. This is what's so amazing about grace. But God was looking for me. I wasn't searching for God because the Bible says there's no one who searched for God. There's no one who seeks God. But God was searching for me. God sent his son to seek out his kids. So the whole story of the gospel is we couldn't get to him, but he got to us. We couldn't make a way, but he made a way. And the reason why I think a lot of men and women fall is because they want too much glory for the circumstances that they're now in. Let me ask it to you like, why do you think there's a lot of pastors that fall? And I'm a pastor, in case you were wondering. You know why a lot of pastors fall? Pride, yes. But where does the pride come from? An overestimation of their human ability. And I want you to hear me as clearly as I can say this. Because our community has been rocked if you've been paying attention by these things. I am who I am and I'm in the circumstance I'm in sheerly by the grace of God. God didn't need me on his team. God didn't call me because I was gifted. In fact, I joke about this and my dad was here this last weekend and we were talking about it with my family and I've said this before. When I was a kid, I couldn't speak because I couldn't hear. And my dad was recounting, because I didn't remember, he was like, oh my gosh, we went to so many speech therapists. Speech therapist after speech therapist after speech therapist. You couldn't hear. And I just said, I know. And isn't that crazy? God called me to speak. Why? So that he could get glory for it. See, if we think that God called me because we're so awesome and special, and, and, and if I don't get a participation trophy, my feelings are hurt and I'm triggered. that we miss the sheer wonder and glory and grace of God. Paul even said it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, he was given a thorn. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he was given a thorn to to keep from becoming conceited. You wanna know how easy it is for God to bless you with something great like a revelation and you become conceited because of it? 
You know how easy it is for God to give you a blessing like wealth and you become so conceited with it? You know how easy it is for God to give you something like a gift, like a talent, an ability, and you become conceited with it? And you wanna know why God gives you thorns to go along with the roses? You know, because every rose has its thorn, I've been told. You wanna know why? It's because your human heart is so wicked and so sinful, you would take credit for it. And, it. and it took me a while to understand this in my own life, why God left certain struggles and sins in my heart. Because it was not from me asking him to take it away. It was not for me trying hard to take it away. But according to 2 Corinthians, God leaves some things to keep you humble. He will leave some infirmities, speaking about healings and miracles. He will allow certain things to happen to keep us humble. Because the worst thing that he can do is take it away, give you that miracle, and you become conceited. So he will wound your hand in order to heal your heart. See, John is saying so many people didn't believe because they couldn't believe. And even when they did believe, they took too much credit for it. Let me leave you with these last two stages. I've told you pre-fall man and post-fall man, but let me give you the last two as a way to highlight the glory of God. The, second, or the third stage in the process in our relationship with Jesus is reborn man. Reborn See, when by grace through faith, God opens our eyes, we respond, we're saved. We are now in a reborn state. Which, watch this. We have the ability to still sin, that's flesh. But now we have a spirit that came from Christ that now gave us our ability to non passe pecare, able to not sin. So now, if you're in Christ, you possess the ability to not sin. You still possess the ability to sin because that's your flesh. But right now you possess the ability to sin or not sin like Adam had and like Christ had because the spirit of the living God is living within you. And now by grace through faith, when you believe the word of God, you have the ability to not sin. Isn't that glorious? But let me give you the last glorious one which ironically, it's called the glorified man. Look at this one. Now, in our glorified state, we have the ability to not sin. And watch this. We have the unability to sin. We're not able to sin anymore. We're not able to sin anymore. Because God didn't just rebirth our spirit he resurrected our bodies. And now our resurrected bodies are with our reincarnated, not reincarnated, woo, that's a whole other thing. Regenerated spirit. Our regenerated spirit is with our resurrected body. And now watch this. We don't possess the ability to sin anymore. We can't sin. Because God did what we couldn't do. He resurrected our dead bodies and gave us a new one. And now, watch this, we are ultimately free. 
We are more free than Adam was. We have the same freedom that Christ has now. Christ doesn't possess the ability to sin because he has a resurrected body. So he had to become man so that he had the ability to sin, but he chose not to sin. And now that he's resurrected, he possesses the ability to not sin. And if you and I are in Christ, one day we'll possess that too. And that is all because of the goodness and glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of this. God, I know this is a lot to think about and it messes with us. But God, I pray that it would mess with us in a good way. First, to show us our complete and utter depravity. But then second, show us, God, our complete dependence upon you. God, I know there are people today that have not trusted in Jesus and it's because they haven't understood that they don't possess complete freedom of the will. They are in bondage to sin. And they only have the ability to choose sin. Oh, but God, if they'll admit that and confess that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through what was purchased by Christ on the cross, you will make them able. You will regenerate them. You will save them so they can respond in faith and then possess the ability now to not sin. And in faith, God, if they will respond in one day, when you return or they die and you resurrect their bodies, they will possess the ability to never sin. Oh, how glorious that will be. And so God, I pray right now that you would save them. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close. If you've never trusted in Christ, but today you feel like God is opening your eyes to the truth of your sin and circumstances, then in faith, you confess that you'll be saved. So if that's you and you wanna trust Christ, then you can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud, but it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me, that you sent your son, Jesus, to be the second Adam, to choose rightly, and the righteousness that he deserves, God. In faith, I ask you to give that to me and then put my guilt on him. I confess I'm a sinner and I'm trusting in Jesus to save me. Would you forgive me? In faith, I believe. Again, nobody looking around or talking. If you've never trusted in Jesus before, but you just prayed that with me, would you just simply lift up your hand if you're in one of our physical locations? Just lift it up. Thank you. We got men and women going to walk around, put a gift in your hand. And when they do, you can put it down. Whether you're in person or online, in just a moment, you'll have an opportunity to fill out our digital connection card. Let us know who you are. 
We wanna celebrate with you in baptism at some point because that is your public profession. But then those of us who have trusted Jesus, but you're still struggling with sin, which would be everyone if you're still alive and you've trusted Jesus. You still have a flesh. You still have the ability to sin. But now because of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in you, you have the ability to not sin. But we have to stay humble. And every day ask for more grace from God to fill us again with the power of his spirit. To never think arrogantly that we can do this on our own, but to say, stay dependent upon the spirit. And he will give you more grace and more grace and more grace until he comes and resurrects you. And then he will glorify you. Father, thank you for this glorious truth. This is why we can confidently say, like the book of Hebrews says, he who began a good work will complete it because it's all your work. We are saved by your work. We're sanctified by your work. And one day we'll be glorified by your work. All we have to do, God, is admit our inability to work, which is what makes this gospel, this good news, the best news. So we ask you, God, to continue to glorify yourself in and through us. We look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.